Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hey, what's up? This is Tommy Walker. I'm founder of The Content Studio, a high-growth consultancy for B2B SaaS startups and enterprises. Awesome. Welcome to the show, Tommy. Um, Thanks for having me. A little bit about the most exciting thing that you're working on these days. Uh, Right now, I actually just took on a new client, and I'm very, very excited about that because we are uh, going to be a number of doing a number of different things with their growth program. They are a live uh, streaming service that you've probably heard of. Um, and we're going to be building out the infrastructure. Uh, we're, we're bringing their infrastructure to market. And it's going to be uh, pretty awesome, the stuff that we're working on together. That is awesome. And can you tell me a little bit more about your general team structure within the Common Studio? Sure. So right now it's just me. Um, So the way that the content studio works is when we work with a new company, uh, what I try to do is build out the entire content marketing program. So that can uh, include, depending on the company, if they want to work with um, freelancers, freelancers only, then I'll assemble a team of freelancers and we can start uh, doing things like monthly brainstorms and group projects and uh, building up a content calendar together. Or if they want to hire the right people, that involves hiring and sourcing uh, the ideal candidates. Absolutely. And I know you've had like extensive experience working on, I mean, both obviously on your own, as well as working with like high profile brands like Shopify Plus. Can you maybe tell, walk through some of the nuances in your experience of like when it is better, like when you're building out like your content marketing dream team? Like, when does it make sense to hire completely in-house? When does it make sense to work completely with freelancers? And what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of a hybrid approach with both employees and freelancers? That's a great question. Um, With with full-time employees, what I found with full-time employees is that they're really good for navigating the internal part of the company. Uh, No content team is, content is not, should not be left just to the content team. Um, It is a team game. You are usually the most frequently published uh, part of the brand itself. And because of that, you have to get the perspective of a number of different people. So working with in-house employees, it's much easier to kind of map the network, especially within larger organizations, um, map that network of people internally and and get those different perspectives um, from within the company. With freelancers, uh, what I found is really important, or, or what I found as far as like authors and bloggers specifically, is that uh, they're generally a little bit hungrier, right? Um, having good client relationships for a freelancer is vital to cash flow, and therefore the quality of work is, from what I found anyways, consistently higher, um, especially if you are. Uh, treating these freelancers, the ones that you work with as professionals who have a wide uh, range of or high level of visibility into the market that you're in. Um, So what I love about having kind of both perspectives is that because a freelancer is usually working with other companies that are either directly uh, 
like usually adjacent to what you're doing, um, that field of view is much wider. And if they're able to bring that insight to an internal team, right, you have this ability to sort of match up uh, what's happening on the inside and the outside. Plus, um, in my ideal team structure, I also uh, set up outposts on other websites. So I'll have, we'll have the stuff that we're publishing on our blog and throughout our own channels, but then we'll also set up what I call an away team. Uh, and we can leverage our freelancers to work with external websites. We can help make those placements or ide uh, identify the different places that we'd like to be. Um, and then have them sort of post up on those different websites, as well as the ones that we're uh, our own properties. So that's kind of the way I like to think about it is we have this sort of internal perspective from our internal employees mapping that network and getting to know everybody. And then we have the freelancers who have this much wider field of view and can help give us perspective that we might not see because uh, when you're internal, uh, you can get sort of myopic at times. Yeah, that's a really, really balanced and smart approach to take with building out your content team. Can you, a couple of follow-on questions I had, can you maybe describe what your like onboarding process looks like when you are onboarding a new freelance writer or a new freelance editor within your team and how that might differ from onboarding an employee? Uh, yeah, so with employee onboarding, uh, the, the employees that I've had work with me always started as freelancers. So that's kind of important to level set right away is that anytime I've brought a full-time employee on, it's always been with a relationship. We've already, already, already had a working relationship uh, ahead of time. Now, uh, with Shopify Plus especially, but I did this when I was at QuickBooks as well, um, I wrote something called a content code. And that content code was the uh, 10 rules, essentially, that was written in a way that I would like the stuff that we published to be written. Um, and that laid the foundation for our voice and tone and the rest of the communications that we did. And that was always part of the hiring process and through the conversation that we would have um, as, as we go to hire. As far as onboarding is concerned, uh, it's much easier to onboard a freelancer because it's, I, I don't wanna say a transactional relationship, but it's generally like, hey, you, we write blog posts together um, or we create video together or uh, we create together. And that relationship sort of, it, it, it's natural, right? It's organic. We already have this sort of working relationship uh, while we're onboarding. We, have that foundational document that guides the work that we do. And then part of the interview process that I have is going over that document and seeing if we're a good match just personality wise. So it's really kind of organic. And then if we're onboarding employees, generally speaking, because we've already got that working relationship with each other and we've had this really solid, um, you know, process uh, of, of finding the right people, when you onboard an employee, generally speaking, it's not like here, let's go over the editorial guidelines or whatever else. It's more of here's how we plug you into the rest of the company. And generally speaking, that's not actually uh, me. It's more like, let me introduce you to the right people. HR is going to do their thing, so forth and so on. That makes a ton of sense. You said something really interesting at the beginning of that, where it said 
most, like, I think you said most or if not all of the employees that you've worked directly with have started out as freelancers. Um, yes. That's something that's a little bit uncommon. Can you maybe walk through, like, how you're even able to get a freelancer to be like, hey, I, you know, I want to, you know, to actually be willing to work in-house instead of continuing as a freelancer? Yeah. Um, so, so I've had a couple of direct reports and that conversation essentially just came after we were building a great working relationship together. And it, it really has just been, you know, would you consider coming in house and doing this full time? And, and, you know, here are the perks of being a full-time employee, right? Health benefits and, and all of that other stuff. But generally speaking, it's more of just an evolution of the relationship that we've already built together. So it's not really a lot of convincing, I suppose. Um, yeah, I guess that's the best answer I can give to that. Yeah, that makes sense. Shifting gears a little bit. Obviously, when you're doing something like content marketing, where there is a decent amount of deep work involved, especially on the writing and the editing side, um, how do you... What's kind of your approach to working asynchronously versus synchronously and, you know, making sure that you are focused on the work and potentially not just in meetings, back, 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 back? Mm, that's a great question. So I've, I've always worked with different people within different time zones, and it's about the type of communication that you need to have. So the asynchronous stuff is more along the lines of, you know, hey, where, where are the progress reports, right? Where are we at? Can I leave this for somebody at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, their time, and they can get back to it in the middle of the day. It's not time pressing stuff for me. And it's, it's for me to understand what the difference between that is versus something like, hey, let's hop on a call and talk about whatever X, Y, and Z is when it comes to this piece. Um, Generally speaking, when it comes to the creation process, uh, I have, and I'm not always the best at this, but I have always gone, okay, here's, here's the piece, right? Here's what we want to talk about. Now here's, we're going to schedule a half an hour conversation to just talk about what the emotional quality is that I want the reader to walk away from with this, right? What are the, what are the main touch points that we have to have? And what is it that we're really trying to get out of this thing? Right. And the way that I think about content in general is more about finding that emotional quality uh, of, of the piece rather than just going like, oh, here's something that's SEO, you know, SEOified, right? It's more about, hey, let's think about why somebody's doing this. And that can only be done in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, and then the other side of that is like more of the day-to-day -day transactional stuff. Like, do I need to have this uh, right away? Um, some of the other things I've done though, the more real-time stuff is uh, one exercise that I like to do when I've built a team is once a week, right? As part of our weekly standup, uh, we will put out, uh, I'll, I'll, I've put out a, a image of just some random person, right? Maybe from stocksy.com uh, and said, let's write about this person, right? Who, who is this person? Let's talk about this person. We'll take 10 minutes and identify who this person is and kind of you know, talk about where they are in their life and what their business is and all of this other stuff. And what that has done for us is it allows us to get into each other's heads, but it's also like a little friendly competition because whoever has the most voted on um, 
thing, right? We just vote with little emojis in Slack or whatever, but whoever has the most voted on thing, they'll get you know a $10 gift card to coffee, right? Something simple. And that's stuff that you can only do in real time. And it really is to just sort of distill it, right? Bring it back down. What are the things that have to be done in real time? And what are the things that you can wait on? And you have to really kind of weigh that as you're working asynchronously because it's very easy to fall into that trap of like everything needs to be right now and it's like no you have to put up some guardrails and have discipline around that yeah absolutely um and you kind of touched on this with this weekly um stand up but what are some of the ways that you can make it so that everyone on the team whether they're an employee or just a freelancer writing for you feel like they're part of the same kind of you know, have the same sort of goals and mission in terms of the quality of content? Ooh, that's a great question, Jess. So at the beginning of every month, uh, we have our content calendar, right? We build up the content calendar based on pitches that have been put out there based on a theme that we want to talk about. So uh, already from the very beginning, I try not to be a very transactional editor, right? I'm not, here's, here's the pieces that I want, you give these to me and let's go back and forth. Um, instead, our monthly meeting when it comes to the editorial planning is here's the theme that I wanna cover and here's sort of what I want people to get out of it. Here are some thought starters, kick me some ideas. Um, and by doing that and, and by setting the tone too of going, there are no bad ideas, right? We, we don't have any bad ideas. We're, we're gonna put these out there without judgment. That doesn't mean they're all gonna make it to calendar, but we're gonna put these ideas there without judgment. And if something sounds interesting, we're gonna kick it off each other, right? Oh, what can you add to this? Is there something that you can add to that? And as a, as a facilitator of that conversation, I'm always trying to get people involved. It's not just people talking to me. I try to get that crosstalk going because I know that each of the freelancers that I'm working with have this wider field of view. And by having that level of involvement with each other, right, this starts to build more of a team bond, whether or not they're internal or not. In some instances, I'll also say, uh, you know, hey, you two team up on this because you have complementary ideas, right? And one of the teams that I built, I had an in-house legal counsel person and an, uh, a freelance accountant who had been doing accounting stuff for a long time. And there was a lot of synergy between those two things. They're both freelancers, but by putting these group projects together, they have this ability to bond and communicate outside of just the working relationship with me. Um, I don't know if I've gone off rails on the question there, but the idea is always, how can we start to facilitate this conversation that happens crosstalk rather than just going, you know, it, it's just me and them. Uh, the other thing, is that when it comes to that content calendar, right, we'll have ideas that are complementary to each other. And as drafts are coming in, I will always have, especially when things are some overlaps, I'll always have an author in the workflow have the ability to see what somebody else is working on. So we can have that conversation within our workflow and making sure that everybody's uh, content is up to par because everybody has that same level of visibility. And what that does when you going back to the content code for a second there is I have this level of consistent quality that I've vetted in the very beginning of the hiring process that 
everybody now knows that standard and everybody's still trying to push each other forward because there's a level of visibility um, and because there's just this level of trust within the team that's been built uh, and, and, a, and a passion for the work that we're doing coming from me. So um, having clear expectations of the content, hiring the right people, and making sure that there's that level of visibility and collaboration sense across the board is really what pushes, I think, pushes everybody to do a little bit better and set the bar a little bit higher. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned briefly, like, you know, your content code and um, hiring writers to make sure that it kind of fits into uh, the editorial guidelines that you do have within your content code. Can you maybe speak to a little bit more about, since I know you've hired quite a bit and hired and worked with quite a few writers over your career, can you maybe speak to a little bit more about what you look for when you are hiring and vetting writers? Yeah, so uh, I, I write the content code first, right? I'll kind of take a step back for a second on the question. I write the content code first, which is the result of massive amounts of market research. And the goal of that is to identify those places where uh, you can jab at the market, where other companies can't sort of compete with because they're either too big or they move slowly or they, they're feature set or whatever, right? It's just places that can be jabbed at. That then informs the uh, job ad that I've written, which is intentionally written to attract the right people and repel the wrong ones. And then from there, um, build a short list, right? Uh, now, the last couple of times I've put these ads out, I've gotten over 150 applicants within 24 hours. And the idea is to build the short list of the people whose work that I like, right? I ask for three different writing samples that are best representative of the work that they do, but also of what I'm trying to accomplish and the vision that I have, which is very clear uh, in the job ad that I've written. And then once I've built that short list, I'll take one of those articles from the people that I want to go on and I'll actually do a full edit on something that's been published. And the idea there is to see how that person responds to my editorial feedback and if our uh, style gels with each other, right? And by doing that, it's incredibly time consuming on my part, but it's, I, I think of it as an investment up front rather than, um, you know, just working with people and then finding out later on down the road that I've burned money or we're not a right fit or whatever. And if that editorial feedback comes out, right, if they if they respond well to that, then we're going to move on to the next round, which is let's schedule a conversation and see how each other, you know, how we how we communicate with each other. And if we, you know, gel as human beings and if there's like a level of trust there. Um, and that, I think, has really helped with finding the right people and working with the right people. Because by the time we get to that first team call together, we already have a sense of, like I already have a sense of who the other person is and they already have a sense of who I am. And there's this level of trust that we've built early on that if I've brought you on, then the other people that I brought on too have very complementary um, personalities and skill sets. So, when we hit the ground running on that next conversation, it's always been, from what I found going through this process of the deep editorial, having this content code in place, uh, and, and having this interview process, it's 
when we start to hit the ground, we already have some level of synchronicity uh, early on that carries over into the rest of the work. And then I'll spend the next three months going deep editorial on everybody, um, just so we can have like a stronger sense of what we're trying to do. And then after that, because those expectations have been made clear from the very outset before they were even brought onto the team, the, the, I can take my hands off a little bit more and trust the stuff that's going to come in because we already have a good sense of the expectations um, and that level of camaraderie that's built within the team. Yeah, that's a really, really thorough um, in detailed process. Can you, when you're doing these editorial reviews, whether it's, you know, with some like a published sample that an applicant submitted or the very first few writing assignments that, you know, a new writer on your team submits, what are some of the, I'd say like most common, I don't also know if mistakes is the right word, but let's go with that as there that you kind of see over and over again um, that writers make. That's a great question. Um, I don't see it so much anymore uh, because I have, um, I've been an outspoken uh, person on this and, and there's like this level of expectation that comes in, but I think there are a couple things. Um, the first one is this sort of, I call it roller coaster, right? And it's, it's with, you know, it's, it's a weak statement that opens up the piece, right? It's usually the most common piece of editorial feedback I give is cut the first 500 words, three to 500 words, because people are always burying the lead, right? Mm -hmm. There's this like clearing of the throat that happens on that first draft. And it's like, we don't need to do that. We can just get straight to the point. Um, then the other part of that is that after every subheader, right? I think of it like a roller coaster, right? You, you kind of ramp up in the beginning and then you descend and then you hit that next subheader. And then we're restating what the subheader says. You ramp up, you descend, you kind of have a weak conclusion. Generally speaking, you move to the next subheader, you ramp up, ramp up and descend. And, and this usually isn't from the folks that I hire, but it's something that I see all the time. And the way that I like to sort of the metaphor I like to give or the visual that I try to help people um, wrap their head around is instead of this roller coaster where you're ramping up and down uh, within each post, it's instead think of it like a waterfall, right? How do we use subheaders to emphasize a point then, you know, use it to sort of have a have a hard end to the last point that we just made and a hard beginning to the next. I don't know if that makes sense, but it really is about trying to draw people from the very top of the page down to the very bottom. And when you have this sort of roller coaster feeling where it's, you know, here is the subheader, here is the statement of the subheader, here's where I'm going with this. Now let's wrap it up. You keep doing that. It's very exhausting as a reader. Uh, so so I try to, that's one of the biggest ones that I help try to eliminate. Absolutely. Um, I, I feel like sometimes you hear, like, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but I feel like sometimes you also hear that within the first, let's say within the intro of a blog post. And I see this all the time where it kind of resembles, um, like a high school or a college essay. <laughs> yep. Um, I'm not sure if that's kind of the same thing you were kind of getting at there where it's, Hey, so you're kind of stating the problem and maybe not even meeting readers where they actually are at and instead just trying to give a summary of here's everything about this particular topic before we dive in 
Right. Yeah. It's, it's tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you just told them. And it's like, that doesn't really work in professional, you know, for, for blog posts. It's it, blog posts in particular. It's, it, it, it stinks. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, the reason why, you know, I also kind of do a little bit of a writing and editing. It's the reason why I very rarely ever will, um, like the samples from an academic writer um, for yeah. that exact reason. Um, but I was going to just kind of dive into something else that you said there, which was really interesting. And you kind of said, like, don't bury the lead. Um, yeah. From my own back, this is just going from my own background more than anything else is someone who was a trained journalist, didn't really work in the industry for that long before I went into marketing. Um, but like, have you personally found like any sort of synergy between like, hiring journalists or like, you know, English majors or something else in particular that kind of works better towards that, um, towards, you know, that idea of maybe not burying the leader so much, or is it just more something you just have to train every writer on? No, that's, that's actually a great question. Um, so when I was at Shopify plus the, uh, I, it was a trained journalist who was, uh, an award-winning journalist, which was even better. Um, who did most of our case studies. And what was great about that experience was that because this person was a journalist, they knew how to draw that story out of people and get that interview uh, where they were able to have this level of vulnerability that you wouldn't normally get out of this conversation uh, with just somebody who didn't have a solid interview skill set. That was, that was like, the, the journalist aspect, that was like where I said, let's let's match this up with the type of content that we want to have produced in this area. Um, I haven't worked with any trained English majors, at least not that I know of. So, so there's that. But one of my authors at one point was, um, they had gone to seminary school and they were a pastor. And what's interesting about that conversation or that person's writing was that they were able to really connect that emotional state that, that you would need out of somebody, like regardless of the conversation or the topic at hand, they're able to connect to that emotional part of the conversation and really sort of guide and understand where that person is if they're searching for a particular topic, if you're looking at something SEO optimized um, or why somebody would click on something if it was more um, social optimized. So these really compelling arguments and matching these background strengths up to the type of content that we're trying to produce, uh, very, very helpful. And, and when I think about building out the content calendar and when I think about the team that I'm trying to build, I, I look at the types of content that I want to have or I'll shape the content strategy around the strengths of the people who I have enjoyed writing with, right? You have this general idea of what it is that you want to do you have this vision for where you want to go but then i've hired people not necessarily because of what they've published before but because of their background and where their strengths are going to be and then we can shape our overall content calendar and approach based on doing what people are strongest at yeah that makes a ton of sense i always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions towards the end of a conversation if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose and why? I don't know. Um, 
Abraham Lincoln, I think. And because he, um, because of the tenacity that he had before he became president. Good answer. If you had to write a book tomorrow, what would you write it about? My life. Can you elaborate a little bit more? <laughs> I was, it's been, it's been a very um, interesting journey. Uh, I was born in a hurricane and then everything else sort of followed suit. Uh, I've been all over the place. I, I lived in, I lived in multiple places. I've, I've lived multiple lives and, uh, and, and it's just been a really fun journey that I think can be useful or helpful to people if they need inspiration, I suppose. And what's one book that you think all content marketing leaders should read? Story by Robert McKee. <laughs> yep, Story by Robert McKee, hands down, uh, gives, goes into the fundamentals of story, structure, substance, um, subtext, and uh, all of the different elements that make a good, compelling story. Uh, story by Robert McKee, hands down. Awesome. Um, it's been really great chatting with you today, Tommy. Where can listeners find you online? You can find me at thecontentstudio.com or uh, on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Tommy is my name. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.